Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Here's something fun. I'm making a spinoff kind of thing about geniuses, about what a genius is, what does the word mean, that's going to appear over at Himalaya. I'll give you some details soon. Also, You Are Not So Smart has been nominated for a Webby Award for Best Science and Education Podcast. Thank you very much for all of the support over the years that has made this possible. I'll find out this week if the show's won. And if you want to continue supporting the show, go to patreon.com slash smart. Also, you can go to Twitter. And follow me at David McGraney. Follow the show at Not Smart Blog, Facebook slash You Are Not So Smart. And you can find all the past episodes, the entire back catalog over on Spotify or iTunes or SoundCloud or Stitcher Omni or YouAreNotSoSmart.com. Okay, let's talk about narcissism. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 206. When we first started doing the data analyses and we're like getting these findings, Pascal was really excited about it. And he was like, you don't understand how big this is. Like, you don't understand how big, how, how big of an impact this is going to have. And I really didn't, to be honest, I was like, I was like, you know, kind of like joking around with him, like, oh yeah, this is great. But in the back of my mind, I was like, nobody's going to care. Like nobody cares about this. Um, and I was wrong. And, and so one thing that, that's been shocking me, I'm not going to lie to you, David, shocking me. So the media has been treating this finding, which again, we did not <laughs> anticipate to be that big of a deal, as if we had discovered fire, okay? Yeah. So, so, I, so saw, like, I saw it on Reddit before you... David, I saw it on Reddit, <laughs> randomly, randomly scrolling, scrolling down, down, down. The I, was like, I was like, what? People do care so a it was lot. really a lot people care a lot it was it was really exciting um i think with this actually being my first first authored paper this was also you know not i would say not the norm of the experience <laughs> so i yeah i saw it in the wild in multiple places but here's what and that's great i guess for us but it worries me david what does it mean that this resonates so much with with people Why does this resonate so much with people? That's the same question both Pascal Wallach and Mary Kowalczyk, psychologists at NYU, asked me when I reached out to them after seeing their research all over the internet a few weeks back. 
research into the true nature of narcissism. And this is incredibly popular research because if you talk about narcissism on the internet, if you talk about psychopathy on the internet, it's sort of guaranteed clickbait, which was not their intention. In fact, they didn't even intend to study narcissism at all when they started this research. They didn't even know that's what they were researching. And we'll get to that in a second. But I do want to note, this is incredibly well-conducted, ultra-quantified, overly careful, groundbreaking research that is very popular on the internet right now, on Reddit and other places, because it plainly redefines the very idea, the term, narcissist. And it also cleaves away from narcissists the entire category of personality and psychological disorders that we might classify as psychopathy or psychopaths. And in addition to all of that, this research suggests that, well, up until now, psychology classified narcissists or people with NPD as two types of narcissism personality disorder, grandiose and vulnerable. So you have grandiose narcissists and vulnerable narcissists. Grandiose narcissists, as they were previously described, tend to really love themselves, and they heavily manipulate their social environment for personal gain. Vulnerable narcissists, on the other hand, don't love themselves, not their true selves. They love their image, and they are highly aware of the fact that it is an image, and they work very hard to prevent anyone else realizing that. But here's the thing. According to Pascal and Mary's most recent research, there is no such thing as a grandiose narcissist. That's just another way to describe a psychopath. Their research suggests that all narcissism is what we used to classify as vulnerable narcissism. And though it took until 2021 to quantify this, to provide evidence for this, this is something that was predicted and explored in depth for years by a television show whose main character was, and still is, easily the greatest portrayal in fiction ever, according to this research, of what a true narcissist really looks like. This is the greatest advertising opportunity since the invention of cereal. We have six identical companies making six identical products. We can say anything we want. That's Don Draper, the main character in Mad Men, which is a show that explores, through Don Draper, the struggle that a vulnerable narcissist, which, again, is the only kind of narcissist, the struggle a vulnerable narcissist faces when they continuously attempt to curate a brand, a personal brand, an image, that separates them from others and themselves, their true selves. But everybody else's tobacco is toasted. No, everybody else's tobacco is poisonous. Lucky Strikes is toasted. Well, gentlemen, I don't think I have to tell you what you just witnessed here. I think you do. Advertising is based on one thing. Happiness. And you know what happiness is? Happiness is the smell of a new car. It's freedom from fear. It's a billboard on the side of the road that screams with reassurance that whatever you're doing 
It's okay. You are okay. Without spoiling Mad Men too much, in the show, Don Draper is not who he says he is on multiple levels, and he hides his true self from others with a character he created named Don Draper, who dons the drapery of a successful advertising executive who seems confident and masculine and sexy and cultured and in command of himself, when in fact, he is incredibly insecure and unsure of how to be a person, how to achieve actual happiness, which makes him great at advertising. In fact, he often tells his clients, PR people understand this, but they can never execute it. If you don't like what is being said, change the conversation. If you don't like your image, just make a new one, a fake one. Identity to Don Draper is always a fiction, and all people are fictional. So, you might as well write a compelling narrative for yourself. The product is good. It's high quality. Dogs love it, but the name has been poisoned. That name got us where we are. Do you think that was just luck? I'm not saying a new name is easy to find. And we will give you a lot of options. But it's a label on a can. And it will be true because it will promise the quality of the product that's inside. Throughout the show, there are times when people do see through Don Draper's mask. And when that happens, he panics. And he usually responds by either deflecting or by flexing. Here's an example of a little bit of both. Well, I'm not really as bad as all that. I was under a lot of pressure. Another count. Doesn't really matter. No, it doesn't. So, without making things worse, can I ask you a personal question? Don't you want to get a second drink in me first? Why aren't you married? In this scene, Rachel Minkin, the first woman we see in the show who challenges Don on his posturing, frustrates Don because she seems impervious to his charms and aware of his toxicity. And since he tends to deal with his insecurities by seducing women, by validating his image through the way they see him, it rattles him. So he changes the conversation to her insecurities. And when she says she's looking for true love, he flexes with this. She won't get married because she's never been in love. I think I wrote that. It was to sell nylons. For a lot of people, love isn't just a slogan. What do you mean love? You mean a big lightning bolt to the heart where you can't eat and you can't work and you just run off and get married and make babies. The reason you haven't felt it is because it doesn't exist. What you call love was invented by guys like me to sell nylons. Is that right? Are you sure about it? You're born alone and you die alone, and this world just drops a bunch of rules on top of you to make you forget those facts, but I never forget. I'm living like there's no tomorrow, because there isn't one. The problem is that when a narcissist flexes, people around them cringe. And when they cringe, they flex harder, which causes people to cringe more. And soon they manifest that which they fear the most. 
and the solution for them is often to cut ties and start over. In one episode, he suddenly breaks up with a psychologist. He was dating a woman who was helping him shed his mask and embrace his imperfect and underdeveloped authentic self. He met another woman who idolized him, and so he just calls the woman he is dating and says it's over. And she responds by saying, I hope she knows you only like the beginnings of things. Don Draper is a classic example of NPD. He's stuck in a loop of seduce, score, run away. Because he's terrified of anyone seeing the real person wearing his Don Draper mask. Both professionally and privately. Throughout the show, he is often leaving professional engagements and clients for the exact same reasons. His entire existence is moving from one seduction slash pitch to the next because that's the only place he feels safe. That brief window of time when people are entranced by the image he's created. Which is what makes him the best ad man in the world. He understands the urge to run from one happiness to the next, never allowing yourself to feel the reality that rushes in when the spell is broken. And on another level, Don Draper is literally not a real person. Without going into too many spoilers, he's just an advertisement for another person who is wearing this Don Draper mask. And like all ads, there's no way a person could actually be that cool. He is an unattainable goal, both for partners and for the people who want to be like him, people who often get the wrong message from this show, I think. Most of all, though, for the man who created Don Draper, he is an absolutely unattainable goal. Because contrary to popular belief, people with NPD do not obsess over their image out of self-love. They do it because they are protecting themselves from emotional harm. Their greatest fear is a loss of control over this image, and by extension, their lives. Here are two last examples from the show. Obviously, I love Mad Men, especially because of its exploration of narcissism. Uh, And these two examples illustrate, again, when he is asked what's behind the mask by two different journalists. In one case, when he is feeling very vulnerable because of the context of what's happening in that episode, he deflects. And in another case, when he's feeling less vulnerable because he is in that high of convincing people that he really is this amazing human being, he flexes. Who is Don Draper? Who is Don Draper? What do men say when you ask that? There's always a name in every partnership that defines who they are. In the case of Sterling Cooper Draper Price, would you say that's Donald Draper? Yes. Really? Last year, our agency was being swallowed whole. I realized I had two choices. I could die of boredom or holster up my guns. So I walked into Lane Price's office and I said, fire us. Uh, okay, so, so two things. If you go back to the origin of the word itself, Narcissus, right, was a guy in Greek mythology who just could not, not gaze at his own 
his own reflection. I think in a lake because they didn't really have mirrors. I don't know. Don't don't no don't hold me to that, but something like that. So the idea is that narcissism is called that because it's excessive self-love. All right. And sometime in the 90s, someone pointed out that is not entirely true, that there's two versions of this. One is like vulnerable narcissism and one is grandiose narcissism. So we're not claiming that. We're not claiming that we were the first ones to think of that. What I am claiming, which did surprise me, is that the predominant form seems to be the vulnerable kind. In other words, I do believe that narcissism is fundamentally ill-named. It's not, it's not excessive self-love at all. It's excessive self-loathing and you're covering it up. People who cannot modulate correctly based on social feedback from others, there's got to be something going on um, because that's not advantageous. That's not an adaptive response. Um, if you you know are getting feedback from other people that they don't like what you're doing and you continue to do it, that's you know kind of against what we would imagine proper learning to be, um, proper social learning rather. So not so much that we thought that they would be psychopaths, but more so that we thought that they would be narcissistic. And looking more into narcissism and the existing literature on narcissism, you know, there's the, there's the two subtypes, the grandiose and the vulnerable. And it seemed like it made more sense for someone who engages in those kind of, you know, self-elevating behaviors to fit that vulnerable subtype because psychopaths don't feel the need to do that. They don't feel the need to make themselves seem important to other people because they already think of themselves that way. They already think of themselves as the best thing to ever grace humankind. They already have excessive self-love. They already have a high self-esteem. They don't need to do anything or say anything to make themselves feel that way or make other people think about them that way. And when you look at grandiose narcissism, that description is very similar to the description that we have of a psychopath, of that they have excessive self-love. They have this kind of like grandiose idea of themselves. So it didn't really make sense for either of those types of people to engage in these self-elevating behaviors that have negative results because one, they don't need to originally. And two, there's nothing for them to be compensating for. And I think that, you know, when we were looking at that and we, we kind of lead off on this in the paper is that for vulnerable narcissists, they have this insecurity, this need to cover up this insecurity and that leads to them doing these self-elevating behaviors. People don't like that. That further aggravates their insecurity, further wounds their self-esteem. And then instead of changing their behavior, they just continue to persist in this kind of like cyclical, maladaptive behavior of like continuing to self-elevate even in the face of that not being a productive, you know, way to go about it. By the way, I keep using that word flex because that's a new scale created by Barry and Pascal. It came right out of their research. A scale for measuring narcissistic behavior 
along with another scale called prison and another called ass. And all three are poised to revolutionize not only how we make sense of this aspect of human psychology, but also the diagnosis and treatment of NPD by therapists. After the break, we will explore what all these terms stand for, what they measure, and how Mary and Pascal discovered all of this after the programs they used to quantify psychological phenomena rendered images that looked a bit like abstract art, which led them to wonder what kind of people pretend to understand and enjoy abstract art when in fact they are only flexing to appear as though they are confident, cultured, and unique. Something that the literature says psychopaths do not do. All of that after this break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, and I'm very proud to have BetterHelp as a sponsor. I was using BetterHelp before they became a sponsor, and I was very excited to learn that they wanted to sponsor this program. I have recommended BetterHelp to people. I know people right now who I've recently onboarded. I had a friend who had a really difficult medical event and was experiencing a completely new range of anxieties and feelings and concerns. And I recommended therapy. I'd never gone to therapy before. And this helped. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. And the question is, time for what? If our time was unlimited, how would you use it? And the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what is that special thing? What is important to you? What is that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? How do you make that a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and you will get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do that several times and really lock in with a therapist that is able to generate with you that dynamic that's so important. I believe you should be in therapy. I believe everyone should be in therapy for a period of time at least in their lives to sort this out. What's important to you? How do you make it work? And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S. So you want to make better decisions and you have a business. You have a business and you want to make better decisions in that business, you need some sort of key performance indicators, a system for measuring what you're up to, what you're doing, measurable values that demonstrate how effectively your company is achieving your key business objectives. That's a KPI. And I have a recommendation for you. It's called NetSuite. You should be using NetSuite. Here's, here's why. So 
your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. Every business that's doing well, even if it's just starting to kind of do well, it'll start to form some fissures here and there. Things you used to do in a day will start taking a week and you'll have all sorts of manual processes that just there's too many. You can't get to everything. And you don't have one source of truth to make sense of it all, to make those better decisions. If that's you, you should know about three numbers. These are three numbers you should know. 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. That's a big number. 37,000. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system. Streaming accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. 25? 25 years? 25 years of helping businesses do more with less. Close their books in days, not weeks. And drive down costs. And one. Because your business is one of a kind. You don't want some sort of operation or app that's just made for whoever comes along. No, you get a customized solution for creating those KPIs that you need. One efficient system with one source of truth made for one business, your business. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. When you have everything you need in one place, all these biases all these fallacies that I talk about on this program, it's an incredible way to apply everything you learn about making better decisions by having one source from which to pull your evidence, your information. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance for nothing, absolutely free. You just go to netsuite.com slash not so smart. You get it for free. That's netsuite.com slash not so smart to get your own KPI checklist. One more time, netsuite.com slash not so smart. And now we return to our program. Welcome back to the You Are Not So Smart podcast. My name is David McRaney, and in this episode, we are exploring new research into narcissism. Research by two NYU psychologists. My name is Mary Kowalczyk, and um, I'm a master's level psychologist. Um, I work currently at Mount Sinai at the Icon School of Medicine. Um, I received my master's from NYU, which is where this research took place. So my name is Pascal Wallish, and I serve as a clinical associate professor at NYU now of both data science and psychology. For a long time, been interested in psychopathy for, for personal reasons, actually. Not, I'm not a psychopath, but I, I know a lot of them. <laughs> <laughs> and so I got interested in that just out of personal interest. And it's an interesting neuroscience topic, actually. Mm-hmm. So, I, so I've been working on psychopaths for like five five years now, which again that that was completely out of I'm not gonna lie to you personal interest. I was I was just so struck by how many psychopaths I just knew you know not in my personal life but not in my like private life but in like academia. 
that that I thought is fascinating. And then it turned out, as you know, that this is a neuroscience problem and not a you know lifestyle choice problem. So 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 I thought thought it, it falls in my in my domain. Anyway, so this, the narcissism was purely almost accidental. So uh, narcissism is psychopath adjacent. And so as we were studying like psychopaths, we, we caught this. So, so this was actually data driven. So, so here's the bottom line. So we found um, by a study we were doing on psychopaths, just, just to check on something else, that there was an extremely high correlation between insecurity and, 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 and narcissism, which you don't usually see in the wild, to make sense. Like you don't see correlations this high in, in psychology, you know? Like, uh, so, so, and so we did. And so we're like, whoa, this is, we have something here. Pascal um, was my professor at NYU in a MATLAB coding course that I decided to take despite being told that it would run my life for four months, um, which it did, but well worth it. Um, and, you know, we started talking about art, which is not related to this, but just to kind of give you the back backstory. So we started talking about how people kind of like perceive art and what makes art art, because in MATLAB, you can code um, the program to produce figures for you, like graphs and things like that. And sometimes you make a coding error and it spits out something that resembles something that you would find in the MoMA, like a modern art piece or something. You say, hey, like that looks like, you know, some some famous painting somewhere could be or something. And we started talking about how you know, how do people tell the difference between real art and fake art? And then what types of people would claim to be able to tell the difference? And then we kind of got onto this idea of pretentiousness. And that was the point in which, you know, I became really interested in this was this idea of quote unquote, like a pretentious person who you, we, we all know a pretentious person. We know we've, we've all experienced someone who's pretentious and, you know, they, you, they just have this air about them. They just feel and think that they're kind of just like better, more cultured, just kind of like above the norm in in many different ways. And I just sort of got to being curious about the motivation behind doing that because the other people around them don't enjoy those behaviors that they do. So like other people aren't like, oh, I can't wait to go hang out with that pretentious guy. Like he's so fun to be around. So, 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 so one of the things that I'm particularly struck by is why do these people do that? So let me be clear about this. Not, not everybody who's insecure, not everybody who's insecure is a narcissist and not everybody's insecure doing this flexing. But let me ask you, let's say you are working with somebody or meeting somebody or with somebody and they keep like flexing, you know, like, hey, I'm like the greatest thing ever. Like I'm, I'm better than you. What's your immediate reaction? You like it more? Of course not. Like no, uh, that, I might, that, maybe at first I would, if I love them and I trust them or if I'm new to experiencing them, I might think, oh, I'm happy for you. That's great. But if it's overdone and it, or it's done in ways that I feel like are inappropriate, my immediate reaction is going to be like, ugh, this guy. Exactly. So what's really puzzling here, this is what really made me, you know, pursue this to publication is, there's a puzzle here. So I got really curious about the motivation about that. And then of course, Pascal thought that was a really interesting idea. And we just sort of started talking about how we could study something like that. And it turned into what is now almost four years later from that idea sparking of us actually creating different scales to look at 
those behaviors and not just those behaviors, but also what motivates them and what motivates someone to do this kind of like performative self-elevation and like feel the need to come across as culturally more intelligent than other people around them. So, so David, there's not a lot of laws in psychology, you know, as you know, but one of them is that behavior is under operant control meaning that uh, if you do something and you get rewarded for it, you will do more of it. And if you do something and you get punished for it, you do less of it. So what's going on here? Uh, these people who are these narcissists keep doing that, even though it's obviously annoying everybody else and makes them think less of them. That makes sense. So here's what I think is going on. For reasons that we don't quite understand, a long time ago, uh, this cascade got started. I know they feel bad about themselves, whatever, for whatever reason, maybe they're, maybe they're bullied or maybe the parents are mean or something happened. Some, some, something happened to trigger this insecurity, probably in early childhood. Although this is not a study, I don't know this, but something must have happened a long time ago. And then they didn't quite know how to deal with that. And to, to come up with, sorry, so to, to like stench, stench this wound, this narcissistic wound, they were like, you know, I have to like put a bandit on this by like making myself look better. You know, I'm better than you because I don't know I have a bigger toy than you, or a bigger room, to, something like that. And then other people probably made them feel worse in the sense that, well, that's annoying, right? So, so if you make me feel worse, I'm gonna make you feel worse, which made the wound worse, which made their flexing worse. So, so they're caught in this like spiral, this cascade of maladaptive um, behavior. So, in my opinion. What, what we call narcissism is a end result of a runaway, long-term maladaptive cascade. It's not working. You flex more and more, and people like you less and less, which makes you flex more and more, which makes other people resent you even more. And, and it's actually, I'm not, you know, I take no pleasure in saying that. I, this is quite tragic. This is quite tragic and quite sad, actually. The thing that seems to separate the, the, I'm just imagining you on stage, that separates the psychopath, the, the psychopath from the narcissist is their propensity to flex. Uh, <laughs> the, I mean, kind of, yeah. That's that's sort of like the whole gist right there in a nutshell. Because a psychopath doesn't flex, for, I would assume for two reasons. One would be all the things you mentioned. Also, like they're psychopaths that they, they're they're trying they're aliens in human like in flesh suits trying to figure out how to right. how to how to pass. How as, to pass exactly. And, and they don't they, want to do anything to rock the boat, and they also know what people do and don't like and they're going to do what people like because they want to blend in they that's where they get their power from is having people like them so if they did these like cringy flexing behaviors it wouldn't benefit them in any way it just makes me I, I just, it makes me want to be an, uh, an fbi profiler so i can i can say it that. reminds you of like criminal minds right yeah, when they're all standing around and they're like okay our unsub is is this guy, this, yeah. you know, et cetera, et cetera. He feels weak. He feels the need to do all of these things. I can totally see somebody saying all that. And then somebody goes, sounds like, sounds like a psychopath. And you, somebody, and you go, no, no. Actually. <laughs> yeah. no, no, no. Why is that? Too much flexing. Psychopaths don't flex. <laughs> that's, that's my only line. That's my only line in a show like that. Too much flexing. Yeah. So that, that was really like, that was really like the big finding was like, okay, like this is like the distinction that we we felt was missing before was it was sort of this kind of like gray area of where did these two components of this like dark personality trait like what how how are they differentiated 
And then these correlations were really like the foundation of like, okay, like they are statistically significantly different from each other for these reasons. Go into the research. How would someone who is very fascinated with this and who is, mm-hmm. uh, has all, has looking through the literature, how do you create a study to even get into it? Like what, how did you design the study and what was the study that you set alone? Designing this study, it really started out with that question of, okay, so these kind of like pretentious narcissistic people, why do they act that way? What is the motivation? And so then you start to look at what have other people researched in the past and what do we already know and what's already known in the existing literature about these kinds of behaviors. Marion Pascal looked into the existing scientific literature on the two subtypes of narcissism, grandiose and vulnerable. And they decided, looking through all that, that none of these scales really got to the insecurity stuff they were looking for. None of the existing measurement tools seemed to tease out insecurity at all, partly because these scales were all based on self-reporting. So it's asking someone to answer how they think of themselves, not how they would behave in a specific scenario or how they might portray themselves to others. It's asking them, like, do I behave this way, yes or no? Someone who is a psychopath or a narcissist won't really self-report in a way that reveals things that we would consider insecurities. One reason is because psychopaths don't feel insecure, and narcissists generally don't know themselves that well. And if they do, they won't admit to it, not in a self-report. So there's a gap in these measures for motivation and for how one would behave in the real world when engaging in things that might reveal those vulnerabilities, might exacerbate those insecurities. So they created one. They created a scale, a measurement, which they call ass. (laughs) The ass scale. The authentic versus artificial appearance scale, the AAAS. Um, And that was designed to assess whether people prefer real or perceived gains to their quality of life or their social standing. So for example, we would ask them forced choice questions of like, would you rather receive an award for work that you're not proud of or do work that you are proud of, but that it goes unrecognized? So there's a different motivation behind both of those answers. There's like the public validation of receiving an award for work that's kind of meh, or there's doing work that you're actually proud of and like no one really notices. With the ass scale, which measured the propensity for pretentiousness, they had a massive bank of data, which they could then use to develop a deeper analysis they called PRISN, P-R-I-S-N. And PRISN measures one's insecurities about cultural sophistication. The performative refinement to soothe insecurity is about sophistication. That's the full, that's its Christian name, full name. (laughs) Great, great example. I think, you know, the, the wine snob, the coffee snob, beer snob, that's kind of the, like the person we were trying to like really get at. With these two scales, they were then able to create a third level of analysis to determine who among those with a propensity for pretentiousness also have deep insecurities about their own sophistication. And among those, who would be most likely to engage in self-elevating, performative, behaviors. 
there's 52 questions in total. And when I was developing the scale, uh, there I have a photo somewhere of at 2 a.m. above on my wall in my bedroom, just about like 50 flashcards, like taped up to the wall of different kinds of questions and where they fit and what they were actually asking. And I looked like the mad scientist at that <laughs> point. Um, but it was, you know, I mean, we were really, really trying to do something very specific. So we wanted to make sure that it was actually asking what we wanted it to. So the items in the scale ask the participant how they feel about art. So questions like, I crave the experience of great art, how they feel about themselves. I just know that I will be successful, how they feel about other people. I worry what other pe people think of me. Um, and those are questions that were pulled from other scales. And then we created additional questions that are along similar lines. So questions like, it's important for me to be seen with elite groups. Um, and then questions about other activities and, you know, other than visual art. So things like I have a rich vocabulary, I go to the ballet. So I hope I'm kind of like painting a picture of this type of person mm -hmm. that maybe you might, you know, have in mind. Mm -hmm. um, I crave, the, I crave the arts. I crave, I crave it. You know, like I just can't have anything, but you know, the locally sourced, you know, artisanal, whatever have you. Though I probably would not choose such vulgar terminology, I would, I would say I am ravenous for the odds. But I, I, I didn't, I didn't create the study. You did. Please proceed. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So, so prison was this like um, dragnet, hence prison, for detecting these uh, self-elevating behaviors. Like you know, do you go to the opera just to be seen? Do you go to art galleries? just to be seen? Do you proclaim a taste in modern art just to be, you know, edgy? I don't know, things like that. And so, and so, um, and one sub-facet of this is this, on one sub-facet of this prison skill is the flex skill, where you deliberately, like I said, name drop, name brand clothes, things like that. And, and by the way, by your own admission, by your own admission, like not you, but people who, people who admitted to do this. Okay. And, and and um let me see uh and you know need need for val need for external validation deliberately deliberate exp exp impression management you know uh basically claiming that you're smarter or claiming that you're smarter and more refined than you are and so the bottom line is we took sub sub components of prison uh yeah of prison that made up this flex scale we did what's called an omniverse analysis so basically you, you take all possible combinations of of prison and find one combination that is both highly reliable and highly valid. And that is our flex scale. So, um, and then we also asked a lot of questions in that scale about insecurity. So questions like, I sometimes feel like I'm a fraud. I worry what other people think of me. And that was that really specific component that I really wanted to get was, are these people, do they actually feel this way or are they insecure and they're putting on a front? So it was really important that we hit that as well. And then we also had, so pulling from that. So what came from prison was the flex scale. This is so good. This is so good. Did you name these? Um, Pascal names them, if you can believe it. He's so good at this. Well, the flex and the flex scale, you know, we sort of tie this all in at the end of the paper to the kind of current climate around social media and that there is a space 
for social comparison, unlike there's ever been before. Mm -hmm. You're able to go on your phone and within seconds compare the way you look, the way you talk, the way you type, what you wear, what you eat, where you live to other people instantaneously. Whereas before, you know, before the world of social media, that it wasn't as prevalent. So what we're sort of hypothesizing is that as social media has become more integrated into our daily lives, the, there, there, and there have been studies that have shown that there's been a rise in narcissism overall, but that it's not necessarily narcissism in the sense that people think of this like grandiose sense of self. It's narcissism in the sense of feeling insecure about yourself and needing to quote unquote flex and self elevate to soothe that insecurity when you compare yourself to others. So the flex scale in general, the full name is the performative self elevation index. And it's a sub factor that was derived from prison and it's comprised of four cluster facets that correlated strongly with each other when we did correlations between the 10 facets that were determined in prison. And so in, which this is where it gets kind of jumbled, but in the prison scale, there are 10 facets that emerged basically. And each of those are social dominance motivation. So how motivated someone is to achieve social dominance performative self-elevation, like we've already talked about, explicit impression management. So handling how other people see you, the need for social validation, pretty self-explanatory, live impression management. So that's happening in the moment, managing how someone perceives you. So that's how they might be answering questions, the social desirability of the actual participant as they go through these scales. Art appreciation, art engagement, self-deception, cultural engagement, and then other like neutral statements. Um, And so the self-deception component I think is also really interesting because it's like how aware is someone that they're doing this because they're insecure or are they, have they sort of been, have this character that they've curated, have they done it in such a way that they're kind of also fooling themselves as well as everyone else? Of these questions, the four factors that correlated the most were explicit impression management, which is really being worried about what others think about you, need for social validation, which is something that people who are deeply insecure will do, but something that psychopaths will not do, self-elevation, and social dominance. And when they compared these factors with the other scales in their study... And what we found was that flex with those four factors correlated really highly with an already validated measure of narcissism, which we pulled from the dark triad, dirty dozen scale, but it does not correlate with measures of psychopathy. You know, what we're speculating is that vulnerable narcissism is the true narcissism. And then a grandiose narcissist is actually just a different behavioral adaptation of psychopathy. Would you be surprised if you flipped a coin four times and it came up heads four times? I would be a little surprised. A little surprised. Uh, like <laughs> science is a little surprised. That's what that's what a p value of uh, lower than 0. 0.05. five <laughs> so means science is a little surprised. That's it. <laughs> You're a little surprised, but it's not shocking. Anyway, we, what 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 if you had to to get to one in a hundred thousand, you would have to flip the coin. I don't know a lot of times. Uh, 
Let me do it. Let me give me just stay there. Okay. Uh, just let me see how, how often you have to flip the coin to get a hundred thousand. I just okay. Uh, ten times in a row be a thousand. Um, uh, give me one second. Um, no, it's not 15, 16, 17 times. If you flip the coin 17 times and it came up heads 17 times, I'd be, be I'd be we quite surprised. surprised. Quite surprised. So that's what we said. We want to be quite surprised. And so what we found is in our research that there's a link between insecurity and narcissism on that level. Flipping a coin 20, maybe even 30 times and it coming up head 30 times. So there is a strong link, David between narcissism and insecurity. So, so, so one thing that's interesting, David, uh, I'm not sure if you're interested in this at all, but, so, but, but, but I am not a therapist, nor am I claiming to be, but here's something that happened since this was published. So some of my therapist friends have contacted me and they have said, look, Pascal, this is very interesting for the following reason. So one of them said, look, I'm a, I'm a cognitive behavioral therapist. So if someone shows up to my, to my, to my uh, practice, and by the way, if they're narcissists, usually not by volition, some, like, a loved one makes them go, uh, and they show up and saying these things like, you know, I'm better than you because, you know, I, I don't know why I have a better job than you are. People like me more. So, so, so what therapists, like I said, this is from secondhand. I don't know if it's true, but this is what they told me. But what the standard of care is that this is seen as a part of a delusion. So they have to do reality testing. In other words, challenge the narcissist on like their, their like delusions that everyone likes them and they're better. Question for you. If you are a narcissist and if you think about their mindset and you're insecure to begin with, how well do you think that's that's going to go? I mean, I'm going to I'm I'm going to resist it for sure, and it right. may it may encourage me to compensate in some way. Uh, like more, and like I more. might get on social media and tell right. people about the cool things that are happening in my life so that yes. I can salve over that wound. Yes, exactly. And so 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 that's been what the service told me, which is that it's not going well. It's not, uh, it's not going well. Uh, if anything that makes them double down and become defensive and all of that. So what if, and someone often told me they're gonna try this now, what if instead we say, look, we know you're hurting and we're gonna try compassion and give you a sense of like safety and security attachment, I guess, which you have been missing all along. That's really interesting. Cause I think that the, you know, my response to someone who's acting that way is uh, I can see that my role in that dynamic is just making it worse so that I could, uh, I, I, this idea is a very humanistic psychology idea to, um, to express compassion toward the individual, even though they're doing things that are making you feel awful, or even what? though they're being annoying as a way to reduce the, that behavior in them. And then therefore we both start feeling better. That's a different way to go about it. I, I, that's exactly right. And so, and so, so it's just briefly, so I have been not been trained in this, nor <laughs> that consumer as well. A humanistic psychologist. However, uh, the data kind of dragged me to this. What I mean by that is, <laughs> what I mean by that is, uh, here's my suspicion, and this is an old idea by Schopenhauer, and I, but I think he's onto something. Uh, here's the idea: uh, as you know, cats will hide their like pain aggressively. Hmm. Aggressively, hmm. they will not. They will not show you that they're in pain. So if you have cats uh, and they're in severe pain, you might not notice that because they're hiding it. I am starting to suspect, and this is Schopenhauer's idea, that the, pain, the inherent pain of living is much higher than people let on, in for everybody. And, and then there's different ways to compensate with that, like this inherent pain of living. And I do believe that social media has inadvertently amplified this pain of living in many ways. I mean, you know, so you're doing your show, right? Uh, the uh, I'm, You're Not So Smart show, whatever, right? <laughs> 
Yeah. So, sorry, I'm just tired. And uh, and you're on Twitter, right? And let's say you see someone putting a, put out a show on YouTube, and I don't know, maybe there it's not as good as your show. You know, it's not as good. They they put it together, and it's <laughs> it's a slapdash. But 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 it gets more attention than your show than your last show. At some level, that's gonna hurt. You know, on some level, unless you have uh, amazing self-esteem, you know, unless this is online, you know, it's, I shouldn't take it personal. On some level, that might hurt. So my, my, my point is that I think a lot of the ways we live now in our mortal life, you're challenged on a daily basis in ways that we have never been challenged before. That's good. Like on, a daily, on a daily basis. Like if you're on social media, you, as you said earlier, I think you, you said this just when we started, like you see someone's curated life, like someone what, what they want to show you about their life, that they're always you know, on the beach, sipping pina coladas and they're living the life, right? And you're in your office, like, what am I doing wrong? What's wrong with you? <laughs> so, 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 so I think, but for real though, like like in, in the tribal environment with like 100, 150 people, you probably are not challenged on a daily basis because you have your niche, you're good at something, you know, you have your buddies, but with a, with a, with a society that big, there's all this comparison all the time, in, implicitly, you know? Uh, and you know the old saying, compare and despair, right? So you're, <laughs> you're constantly under assault. And I think we have this unmanaged, out of control pain of living that is much worse than most people let on. So what I'm saying is that what you name something matters a lot. So, so whether if you call something narcissism, implying um, you know, they, they like themselves too much, and then people are maybe mean to them on purpose because they're like, oh, you're not that great, you know, which makes it worse, that's quite tragic. But if you call it something that explicitly acknowledges, no, we know that this is just a facade. You are more moon than sun, and you know it. Uh, um, we all know it. Uh, maybe that's better, you know, in terms of like sheer like effectiveness. Like, like we know, you know, why why call it narcissism if that's completely misrepresenting what it actually is? Yeah, I mean, like, uh, there's also a, a subreddit called "Raised by Narcissists," which for people get it. There's a very popular place because a lot of people recognize they their parents had uh, they were the way they were behaving. It, probably a lot of it is misnaming uh, something that they're experiencing, but that's a place. Um, and then uh, we had we laud certain narcissists like Tony Stark, uh, um, mm -hmm. and the Dark Triad has become very popular here lately as well, especially on dating sites. Um, because uh, it can be very, the narcissistic personality is very attractive. Uh, in fact, a lot of the reason you know the the dark triad is very attractive, and it um it, it's attractive a lot of times because it mimics assertiveness, it mimics uh, confidence, it, it appears, it gives off the same cues as for a confidence while. for a while. For a while, and then what happens is someone who's dating someone in the dark triad they will start to get behind those defenses. They'll start to expose yeah. vulnerabilities, and that's when yeah. the person cranks it up. And they usually take it out on the person they're with. And that's why there's so much interest in the dark triad because people are, are experiencing that after the honeymoon phase. Ooh, this person actually is kind of a monster. Well, I think that's really interesting because that was, as you mentioned, the Reddit earlier on, if you read through the comments, that's a majority of the comments is people talking about their own personal experiences with a narcissist or someone with narcissistic personality disorder and really getting into that kind of cycle that we're talking about, the sort of flexing behavior of needing to elevate themselves beyond what they actually are. And as you mentioned, if you ever do get behind that mask, it's 
you know, it's not a fun time. They don't like that because they really spend, you know, their personality is developing this sort of portrayal of who, what we're speculating is that they're developing this sort of portrayal of who they want themselves to be, but are not. And so they elevate to the extent to make themselves get to that kind of level socially that they want to be at, but feel they aren't at. So they're making up for that gap, that insecurity. Um, and then, you know, I, I always go back to Mad Men because that is such a well-written show and it really did, it really shows you what happens when a narcissist moves to the world in a very successful way, a vulnerable narcissist. The, um, the, the portrayal of that particular character gets deeper and deeper into showing what happens when they experiment with the, with vulnerability and eventually the show uh spoiler it ends with um, oh, I saw it. I saw it. you don't you don't get to see what happens next but you get to see the like the first day in the life of a narcissist going oh wait i'm a narcissist <laughs> and and seeing okay maybe i should think about being different in the world and they go, they they go there through compassion that's, um so, so 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 yeah that's what i'm trying to say yeah so 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 yes all of that so maybe we need a new approach first recognize what it actually is acknowledge it and, and and frankly you know if if these are if there is people who who know there's something wrong with them or feel that there is sorry feel that there is no as as you saw in the show no matter what earthly success you're going to get it's not going to help you think you don't deserve it you know you're not really yourself you know you imposter syndrome you feel like you fooled everybody you know so no earthly success is going to be good enough you have to go back to the root of like what caused this problem to begin with like why do you believe that that um you're not no good let me get to, let me just ask the last thing. Cause I don't want um, the take up too much of your time, but although this is, this is great. Uh -huh. I can talk about narcissism forever. Uh, the, I think a lot of people can yeah. clearly from the it's internet. True, it's true. It's true. <laughs> uh, I, <laughs> what would you say the big takeaway is here? Just as a, this is just an opportunity to have this in a real short form, the big takeaway. And what do you hope people uh, do with this information now that, now that you've quantified it and it's not just something like, you know, people have, um, you know, Mad Men is a great example of exploring what's really going on with a narcissist, but no one, there's no been no scientific evidence to back up some of these assumptions or some of these um, speculations. What would you hope is the big takeaway here? And what do you hope people do with, with your research? So firstly, I think what I hope people do with this research is to take this understanding of narcissism being more complex than we originally thought and applying that clinically. I think that there's, you know, one of the, the key words that Pascal kind of put with this paper is pain. And I think that there is a lot of pain that comes with feeling this way about yourself. And I think that scientifically having a definition that highlights this kind of self-love is really doing people with this personality disorder disservice because that's not how they feel. And I think having a more scientifically founded understanding of like, okay, it's not self-love. It's actually deep insecurity. What do we do to help someone with narcissistic personality disorder break that cycle of the maladaptive self-elevation become more comfortable with their own insecurities and i and i'm not even saying overcome their insecurities but i'm saying realize that everyone has insecurities and that insecurities are just something that you just have to navigate and live with throughout your daily life and security insecurities don't require 
these big shows of self-elevation and flexing, you can have them and still have other people love and accept you without these like compensatory behaviors. Um, and then I think also the other takeaway on the flip side is that perhaps looking at grandiose narcissism in a different light as well. And grandiose narcissism is most, what we're speculating is that it's most likely more closely related to psychopathy. And so there's a lot about that that's now needing to be understood as well. So I think my hope would be that other researchers in this field would look at this and say, okay, there's a million other ideas that we could all now come up with, take it and run with it, do more research, you know, find the fine print, do the, the studies, make your own scales, look deeper, ask more questions and continue to kind of uncover these experiences that apparently, according to the internet, according to Reddit, so many people all over the world are going through. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. For links to everything that we talked about, head to youarenotsosmart.com. And I will have a link to the paper that we were talking about in this episode. And for all the past episodes, with links to all the stuff we talked about in those episodes, you can go to Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes, Omni, Spotify, or youarenotsosmart.com. Follow me on Twitter at David McCraney. Follow the show at Not Smart Blog. Here's a flex. Uh, nominated for a Webby Award. This program was nominated for a Webby Award this year in the science and education category. I will find out this week if it's won. Uh, but still, thanks to everyone who's helped make that possible. If you'd like to keep helping support this one-person operation, help make it better, help for transcription costs and all the rest, go to patreon.com slash you are not so smart. Pitching in at any amount gets you the show ad free, but at the higher amounts, you get posters, t-shirts, signed books, and other stuff. The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace. This music is by Mogwai. And please tell everyone you know about the show. That's the best way to support it. Talk about it all over social media and check back in about two weeks for a fresh new episode. Thank you.
Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Mm-hmm.